live from Earth. It's Space Radio. This is Paul Sartre. And coming up, we're talking about we found the Earth. Uh, it's on the moon. We'll figure it out later. And, of course, taking listener questions about all things in this universe, because that's exactly what this show is about. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern, so call 888-581-0708 to join the conversation. And you can also leave voicemails directly on spaceradioshow.com. And in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about how science can earn your trust. But first, the news. Hello, space fans. Welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Ohio State. And for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. Got an exciting show for you today on Space Radio, where we talk about all the beautiful things in this universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern here in Studio A of WCBE Radio Columbus. It's called 888-581-0708. You can also leave a voicemail anytime from the comfort and convenience of your computer or smartphone go to spaceradioshow.com there's a big old button right there where you can leave a voicemail get those questions in you can also follow along on our live streams on youtube and twitch go to spaceradioshow.com for the links and you can join the space cadets tuning in live from pelsilly alabama cardiff wales lines colorado antarctica i'm not too sure about that one lean Sherbing, sweden thank you for the pronunciation guide virginia beach virginia san antonio texas ashburton new Zealand, Polar Vortex Victim, I feel you there, Hutto, Texas, Austin, Texas, Texas, Represent, and of course, Norway. You can ask questions there. I'll take questions. Send me questions. That's how the show works. Get those questions in. Before I start taking those questions, though, I want to share some interesting bits of news that I got recently. And here's the cool thing about this story. So... You know, the Apollo missions went to the moon, right? And they didn't just walk around. They dug up a bunch of moon rocks and brought them back to the Earth. Lots of them. Tens of kilograms, which is quite a lot of moon rock if, you know, you're on the moon and you need to bring it back to the Earth. And we've been studying these rocks for decades. You know, poking and broading and, you know, lighting them on fire, dropping them from great heights, all the usual scientific experiments. And in one of these rocks which this particular rock has a name. I'm not usually into naming rocks, but, you know, apparently scientists who study rocks are. They called this rock Big Bertha. And some scientists were doing some very detailed examinations of Big Bertha, and they found little bits of zircon. Now, zircon, I had to look up zircon because I have no idea what zircon is. Zircon is a zirconium silicate. It's, it's a mineral. It's a rock. It's a bit of rock. And uh, zircon forms in high-pressure environments. So if you get a lot of heat and a lot of pressure, boom, you make some zircon. And so it's not surprising to find zircon in lunar samples because, you know, the moon, even though it's cold and dead now, back in the day, four billion years ago, was getting slammed by meteorites and comets. Itself, it was still really hot, and so it had all the right conditions to make zircon. But there is something weird about the zircon in Big Bertha, which is perhaps one of the strangest phrases I've ever said on this show, but here we go. The zircon that's found in Big Bertha had to be formed under immense pressure and intense 
temperature, like a really, really intense environment. And just the way it formed, it had to have a lot of water present. Now, this isn't impossible for the moon. You can look back, you know, four billion years ago when the moon was getting slammed around, and you can ask, like, how deep did an impact have to get in order to make this intense amount of zircon, this kind of zircon? And the answer is like twice as deep as we think any of the meteors got when they struck the moon. Because you, you can estimate, you can look at the size of craters on the moon. You can estimate how big rocks hitting the moon were and how powerful their impacts were and how deep they got. And just all of that is too shallow to make this kind of zircon. But it's easy peasy on the Earth. The Earth's crust naturally makes a lot of zircon and it can happen inside of impacts. And so you can have a similar kind of impact on the Earth and easily make zircon or this kind of zircon. And you can spread it out above the Earth and some of it might sprinkle onto the moon like a little bit of salt, like a like a zircon blanket. And then, you know, four billion years later, a bunch of humans dig it up and bring it back to the Earth, completing the circle of zircon in our solar system. Now, it's not confirmed, of course. It's just preliminary investigation. It's just two tiny little bits of zircon in the in Big Bertha in this lunar sample, but, but who knows? There are definitely moon rocks on the Earth, and there are Mars rocks on the Earth, and pro there's probably Earth rocks on the moon, which is neat. And also tells us about the formation of the early solar system. So it's kind of important. That's the latest and greatest when it comes to space. Let's answer some questions. We've got a question on the voicemail lined up, ready to go. So Greg, play the tape. Hey Paul, how's it going? It's uh, Campbell from New Zealand here. I hope you can understand my accent. Hey, I was wondering, how would we know if our galaxy, if we had an active galactic nuclei? That's probably, if it was active, it probably wouldn't be pointing at us very often. How would we know if anything's going on there? Uh, thanks very much, and uh, thanks very much for the option of being able to record a message on the website. Cool, thanks, catch ya. All right, great question. Campbell from New Zealand, I understood you just fine. Uh, don't you be self-conscious about that. Uh, wonderful accent, wonderful question. So active galactic nucleus is is a product of this is something we see in the younger universe this is something we see say after galaxies merge this is something we see when the central giant black hole that sits at the heart of every galaxy let that fact sink in you look at the galaxy every single galaxy including the milky way has a secret it has a dark black heart. It has a black hole weighing billions of times the mass of the sun. Every galaxy, as far as we can tell, has its own giant black hole. And most of the time, this black hole is quiet and fine and just minding its own business like a dragon sleeping in its lair. But every once in a while, a big glass cloud or a bunch of stars will get too close to the black hole. In the black hole, the dragon will awaken and want to consume it, and all that material flows in and surrounds that black hole like, like, a, like a molecular blanket, and then it 
compresses and forms an accretion disk, one of the most violent and energetic situations you can find in the entire universe. And as this material is flowing into the black hole, it heats up, it compresses, it gains density, and it starts glowing. And so even though it hasn't, it's about to hit the black hole, before it falls in, it can emit light. And these are the, some of the brightest objects in the universe. I'm a, a single active galactic nucleus, which is what a feeding active black hole is called, will outshine something like a million galaxies. And they'll run for like a million years. These are ridiculous monsters. And what's more, as this material falls in, some of it can get caught up in very complex electric and magnetic fields. And instead of falling into the black hole, they follow the field lines around the surface, barely skating the edge, and then until they reach the polar axis of that spinning giant black hole, and they shoot out like giant jets of material out into the surrounding universe, actually. These things are tens of thousands of light years long, these magnificent jets. We see tend to see these in the early universe. They're very rare, in fact, non-existent in the modern universe because you need a lot of material falling into a black hole to really trigger one of these events. And back in the day, the galaxies used to be closer together, and so there'd be more opportunities, not so much anymore. Now... In our own galaxy, we have a giant black hole. It's called Sagittarius A star. It's not a star, just move past that. It's, it's a giant black hole. It feeds every once in a while. There are you know, little snacks here and there. And some recent observations suggested that it does have a small accretion disk. It does have a small jet. And that jet happens to be pointed in our direction. But it's so weak, it's just taking a little nibble of the surrounding gas, and so there isn't a lot of stuff to have a lot of energy to generate a massive blast, but it just so happens to be aligned in our direction. So it's not enough to qualify as an active galactic nucleus. It needs to be far, far brighter, and we should count ourselves lucky that Sagittarius A star, our giant black hole, is not an active galactic nucleus because... It's pretty much bad news for the whole galaxy. Like, it, like I said, imagine a thing in the center of a galaxy that is brighter than a million galaxies, and it's the hard stuff. It is radiation like ultraviolet, like X-rays, like gamma rays. These are high-energy particles, cosmic rays. This is not friendly stuff. This is not stuff that... Mm, life would find appealing. We would probably be irradiated. So that's how we know there isn't an active galactic nucleus in the center of the Milky Way, because we're still here. Man, if, if, if something big fell in and triggered an active galactic nuclei event, uh, just you would want to be in another galaxy. You'd, want, you'd probably want to be 10 galaxies over. It's just not going to be friendly. Thanks for that question, Campbell. That was a really fun question to answer. We're going to take a quick break. Don't forget, you can call 888-581-0708, or you can leave a voicemail directly on spaceradioshow.com, or follow those live streams. Again, that's spaceradioshow.com. I'm Paul Sutter. This is Space Radio, and this show is brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can keep this show going, and I will see you after the break.
experience the full effect of today's best club tracks only on WCBE. Hi, I'm James Brown, inviting you to the official start of the weekend this Saturday at 10 o'clock. It's three hours of world-class dance music from 10 to 1, where you hear it first exclusively on 90.5 WCBE. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got another listener question ready to go. But remember, you can join the conversation by calling 888-581-0708 or by leaving a voicemail directly on the website. Go to spaceradioshow.com for the links. And we've got a question, a caller here. Uh, who are you and where are you from, dude? Hello, my name is Aton, and I am from Maryland. Aton from Maryland, thanks so much for calling in. What are you curious about today? So I was in my biology class and I was just, I was pretty boring, but I was thinking about antimatter and matter. Um, I'm pretty sure it's 100% efficient. And so I was wondering if you think it would be a viable energy source for humans and our future civilization. Ooh, that is a really, really fun question. So I'm going to be honest here. There's a reason this show is called Space Radio. It's because I kind of think biology is a little boring i i shouldn't say i should biology is fascinating my heart goes out to all my fellow scientists studying all those wiggly gross things in the world so biology is awesome but i don't blame you for thinking about antimatter during a biology class instead so yeah if you have matter and a little bit of antimatter which is just like normal matter but with opposite charge and you bring them together they completely 100 percent annihilate each other pure matter into energy conversion. Like the particles are gone, 100% gone. And in their place is just energy used in the form of radiation. Like you'll get some high energy light coming out of it. And you can use that high energy light to do, you know, all sorts of things. You can boil a pot of water. You can run a little engine or a turbine. It is a potential source of energy. If you can find a bunch of antimatter, like if you could dig a bunch of antimatter out of the ground and then funnel it in and slam it against some normal matter, you're going to get the universe's purest form of energy with absolutely no losses, and which is really great. Here's the challenge. Antimatter is not found in our universe. As far as we can tell, every star, every planet, every galaxy, every molecule is all normal matter. We're not exactly sure why. That's a question for another show. But it's all matter everywhere we look. There aren't mines. There There's not underground caverns of antimatter, which is good because if there is an underground cavern of antimatter, then the walls would be touching normal matter and they would blow up and then the whole thing would blow up and the earth would blow up. To give you a sense, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but to give you some sense of the numbers, if you had something like a teaspoon of antimatter, you could blow up the earth or something ridiculous like that. There's a, there's a lot of energy packed in there. So the only way to get antimatter is to make it. You have to manufacture antimatter. And antimatter is created in high-energy particle collisions. You slam a bunch of particles together, they do a bunch of crazy things, and they spit out normal matter, and they spit out antimatter. So if you can accelerate stuff to close to the speed of light, slam it into something else that's been accelerated close to the speed of light, and then 
you can make some antimatter, like a particle of antimatter, like one anti-electron, one positron. And then you can send that down a track using magnetic fields, of course, because you can't touch the thing. But you can use magnetic fields to trap it. You can use waving this uh, special configuration of magnetic fields to, to bottle it so it's not touching anything. And then you can do it again and again and again and again and build up particle by particle by particle by particle a bunch of antimatter. And then you can store it, which, you know, is not easy. And then you can siphon some off into a reactor and, and generate energy. But here's the challenge. It takes a ridiculous amount of energy to make antimatter. Just to manufacture that teaspoon of antimatter would require more energy than, than like our entire energy output of the human race for like the past hundred years or something. And so even though antimatter is so juicy when it comes to being a source of energy, it's so expensive to make that it's basically never going to pay off. If you have the ability to make antimatter in abundance very, very cheaply, then you've already solved all of your energy problems. And you don't need antimatter anymore because you know exactly what to do in terms of generating a lot of energy. So very, very cool question, Aitan from Maryland. Really appreciate it. Uh, just keep those uh, antimatter dreams alive. Now, there is a question from the Space Cadets that I want to hit. We've got Kayla Thompson watching on YouTube asking about Zhabilsky's star. Uh, it has something about plutonium in it, if she remembers correctly. That is a great question. So, by the way, Zhabilsky is spelled uh, P-R-Z-Y-B-Y-L-S-K-I. That is Zhabilsky's star. Now, Zhabilsky's star is, is a very, very interesting star. It's one of these stars that you know, is pretty much alone. It's 355 light years away from the Earth. It's a very bright, very large pulsating star. But it has some radioactive elements in it, which, you know, it shouldn't be surprising on its own. Like, oh... There's a star. Stars are made of lots of things like hydrogen and helium. And, you know, they'll probably be sprinkled with some radioactive elements because, you know, whatever. It's just floating around the universe and it'll find itself inside a star. But uh, Zhabilsky's star is very strange because it has, it has a bunch of actium. It has a, it has a bunch of neptunium, uh, plutonium, americium, uh, curium, berkelium. It, it has a bunch of radioactive elements that don't live very long. Hmm. Now, this is interesting because stars themselves live a very long time. And you would think if a star just happened to be born in a gas cloud that had a lot of radioactive elements, that's fine. But those elements should decay away because radioactive elements decay away. So if we're looking at a star and the star is pretty old, how does it have a bunch of short-lived radioactive elements in it. Ah, now that is the question. That is the weird thing with Zhabilsky's star. Not the fact that it has radioactive elements, but the fact that it's far older than the radioactive elements in it. That means it wasn't born with these radioactive elements. That means they got there relatively recently. Now, 
What could it be? The most likely explanation is, you know, it swam through a random gas cloud that reseeded it with some radioactive elements, but we don't see any evidence of that remnant gas cloud. Maybe it got disrupted or thinned out. Maybe it's hard to see. It's, it's like hard to tell. There are a few other stars that have some peculiar radioactive elements, but Zhabilsky star, uh, discovered in 1961, by the way, is like this standout example. It's just weird. And, you know, the universe has lots of mysteries, and mysteries are really fun. Zhabilsky star is a mystery. Maybe we'll someday we'll crack it. Maybe you'll be the one to crack it, Kayla. Thank you so much for that question. We're almost out of time today on Space Radio, unfortunately. But before we go, it's time... For the blue shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is the Blue Shift, my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. And I want to talk about trust. Trust is a big deal, right? It's trust isn't something you easily give to someone else or an institution or an idea. It's something that someone has to earn. And I'm gonna make a case here that even though science is flawed and done by flawed human beings, potentially untrustworthy human beings, that the institution of science is very trustworthy. The process, the methods of science are very trustworthy because science is designed from the ground up to answer very, very specific questions. Science is not capable of answering every question you might ask. It's only capable of answering some kinds of questions, questions about the natural world, questions about how things in the universe work. And because it's designed to answer those very, very specific questions, it's very good at answering those specific questions. And it's designed to eliminate bias. It's designed to overcome natural human inclinations to to lie to ourselves it's built to overcome natural human inclinations to to not see things the real things the, the way they really are to to rely too much on, on our senses instead of the data to rely too much on emotion instead of rationality and logic and because it's designed specifically to answer those questions in a very specific way where things are constantly challenged and cross-checked and torn down and rebuilt, that just because science is done by flawed individuals, and science itself has flaws, don't get me wrong, the process of science can be trusted to eventually lead to correct conclusions. Or eventually lead to better and better descriptions of the way the universe works because that's exactly what it is built to do. That is the engine of science is to get us ever closer to understanding the inner workings of nature. And this takes time. It takes effort. It takes money. The answers are always preliminary. Every hypothesis can be struck down. Every theory can be struck down at a moment's notice. But every time something is struck down, Something is put in its place that is better than before. And that, ladies and gentlemen, my friends and listeners, is why I think you should be able to trust science. 
And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this Voyage of Space Radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by the Ohio State University Department of Astronomy. Learn more at astronomy.osu.edu. This show is also brought to you by you. Go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing I Trust You, Greg. Nancy Graziano for wrangling the space cadets. Dan Michalko for being awesome. And all the fine crew at WCBE Radio for making this show possible. Possible. We record the show every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. You can call 888-581-0708 or leave a voicemail on our website. And you can also follow the live streams on YouTube and Twitch. All that stuff is on spaceradioshow.com. And of course, thanks again, Earthlings, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing. And transmission.